Welcome to the show. I'm Brad Johnson, and this is the Do Business, Do Life podcast. I believe in the and approach to life and business instead of the either or. This show is my attempt to help financial advisors create unlimited growth and freedom in their life and their business through wide-ranging conversations with some of the most brilliant and interesting people on the planet. We refer to this mission as DBDL, doing business and doing life. What's up, y'all? This week, Brad's going to be talking to Jason Wank, who is the founder and CEO of Altruist, which is a modern custodian for independent financial advisors. Jason's got a super impressive background, including building businesses in the financial services industry, one of which being Formula Folios, which I'm sure you've heard of, which has managed over $3.2 billion and was named the fastest growing private company in the country by Inc. Magazine four years in a row. In this episode, Jason's going to talk about his early career and the major shift that he made from being completely burnt out and unhappy to hitting the reset button and designing a business that serves his life. They're also going to get into what it means to be a great fiduciary, how to use the flywheel effect to build momentum for your business, and how AI will either disrupt or serve you as an advisor. Before we get to the show, Jason prepared something super special for the DBDL listeners. Obviously, hitting $100 million in AUM is a true achievement for any advisor, and Jason and his team have put together a detailed report called The Road to $100 million, which is ultimately going to cover five central themes that drive exceptional growth, including vision, client experience, referrals, marketing, and team building. This framework that he uses in the Road to 100 Million AUM is the same framework that Jason's used to build two multi-billion dollar RAs himself, and it's loaded with super valuable insights. So to gain access, first, you're going to text the number 19, not the word, to the DBDL Insider phone number. That's 785-800-3235. When you text that number 19, we're going to send you a text back with a link so that you can go ahead and grab this 19-page report, Road to 100 Million AUM. Please note, Text message and data rates may apply, so you can opt out of receiving text messages at any time by replying stop to any message that you receive. If you want the show notes to this episode, including links to all the resources, books mentioned, and people discussed, visit bradleyjohnson.com forward slash 19. And with that, it's a really great conversation between Brad and Jason Wank. Welcome to another episode of Do Business, Do Life. This one's a special one. Jason Wank, welcome to the show. This is special. It's probably more special for me than you because I've been a huge fan. Yeah, I lurked in the shadows of your podcasting journey for like over a decade. And so, and I always wondered, what would it take for Brad to invite me on? You know, so uh, I guess just like a decade of us sort of building a relationship and following each other's work. So super excited and really proud of what you guys are building with this show, but also just the whole idea behind Do Business, Do Life. It's pretty awesome. Thanks, Jason. It's been really cool. Our relationship, and we'll get into the origin story because it's really, it's uh, serendipitous, as you said, before we went live here. But I've always had a mutual respect. And I think just seeing what you've built and how that's evolved over time in finance, it's been really cool. And uh, just always, you've had a do business, do life approach before we talked about do business, do life. It was only a matter of time before we got you on the show. So with that... Let's go into, we were kind of going down memory lane before we started recording here. I mean, there's there's some fun origin stories, but this one's really fun because it goes all the way back to my early days in this business on really the, the insurance wholesaling side, you know, the marketer side, as they say in the FMO world. And honestly, I, the first memory I have was trying to cold call a guy named Jason Wink that had an office up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I'm curious, like, what's your first memory and maybe we start to piece this thing together for the audience of how we got to where we are today on this chat. You know, I was always someone who, so in, in the early part of my career, you know, I, I started off as a, a programmer, earned financial advisor, 
And so I didn't have any real bias, I guess, when I came into the industry. Like my bias was like, I just was really curious. You know, I had sort of an engineer's mindset. I wanted to figure out what's the best way to solve problems. And I think there was like two problems that I saw if I was, if you're going to be a successful financial planner. I thought the first was you had to solve the problem of client acquisition. Like I realized very quickly that, you know, if you couldn't acquire clients, it didn't matter how smart you were. And the second part I thought was interesting was like, how do you solve people's financial problems in a way that is best for them? And I, I share that just because like, I think it, we chatted in the past about this, um, how most of us, because we come up into the industry with a certain set of bias, like I came up through insurance or I came up through an RIA or I came up through a wirehouse or a you know independent broker dealer or a bank, right? And people tend to form these biases that their approach is the right approach. And I like to think, at least in those early days, I was so naive that I didn't have any bias, right? Because my bias was simply like, well, there's got to be a best way to serve people, you know? And so interestingly, that led me down a path, which, you know, today is pretty common. Back then it wasn't, but, you know, sort of the path of being sort of a hybrid advisor where I went out and mm-hmm. got an insurance license. I formed an RIA. I was very early to the RIA game, so early 2000s. And, uh, but I, I recognized that there were certain clients. My first firm was called Retirement Wealth that focused on retirement, you know? And so I felt like there's certain products that really worked well, you know, for those clients. I remember there, there being this like group of young kind of superstars in the uh, you know, annuity business, like just all of a, like just doing things very different, right? And you, know, you were part of that. You're one of those kind of superstars. And just being like super refreshing, I guess, like even getting a call felt like an honor because like a lot of your business, even back then it was, you work with successful advisors and help them become more successful. So to like have someone cold call you that you're like, oh, wait a minute, I know who this, this guy is. I knew this company is because they work with successful people, people much more successful than me. And so I do recall those days, but I think a lot of it was because unlike, you know, a lot of the industry, like I was actually already doing kind of, again, full comprehensive wealth management, insurance work, annuity work, financial planning for a fee. I charge every client fees, you know, for a plan and then did percentage-based AUM. So that's how we met. Uh, again, I think it was, uh, again, sort of like faithful because then we stayed in touch for a long time. And including, I remember like meeting you in person for the first time and in Los yeah. Angeles. And like, there's a bunch of kind of cool things that kind of happened over the years, but yeah, that's that's going way back. It's probably like 15 plus years, I think, you know? Yeah, it was my very, very early days. So I got into the business in 07, so 08, 09, yeah. 10, somewhere in that era. So there's there was another thing that was similar. Looking back that I kind of, you know, there's certain people when you meet, you connect with, and you're like, I want to stay in touch with that person. And you were one of those guys. And I think both of us were similar in the aspect. I mean, it's one of the things that I love about this podcast. I was also curious. I was also a guy that sought to learn and was always just trying to be a student wherever I went. And so I joined these different mastermind groups, you know, mastermind talks with Jason Gaynard, strategic coach, Dan Sullivan was in a mastermind with Michael Hyatt. And I remember the second time there was like, you'd keep just showing up on my radar. And the, the one I remember, if you have video of this still, we need to drop it in the show notes because I think people will love it. It was a well-produced video. And it was you kind of road tripping from Grand Rapids to Laguna Beach. I don't know if you had like a surfboard strapped to the roof or not, but it was well-produced and it was basically you rolling out MM1 method, which was advisor focused. And it was kind of a, a coaching platform. And I just remember, I'm like, man, this dude's like getting, he's getting out of this kind of what I would call kind of this incestuous world of finance where we, everybody goes to the same conferences and I could tell you were kind of going into like internet marketing world. And I believe that was part of the work you were doing with Frank Kern at the time, who was one of one of the early pioneers. But give me the reasoning or like, how did you go down that path? Because that was ahead of it. I really believe that was ahead of its time when you were doing that. 
Uh, it was definitely different, you know, so maybe that means it was out of its time. But but so it's funny because, um, like, so the origin to that video, I guess, is I built a pretty successful business that was primarily geographically constrained to West Michigan. I did it in a pretty old-fashioned way. I used a lot of seminar marketing, got really good at it. I really enjoyed the science behind marketing. So, like, you know, being very data-driven and building kind of these, these processes and but it wasn't really ever my idea, right? Like part of, part of what, what got me there was like, there's sort of an expectation that, hey, go build a big successful business, make lots of money and you'll be happy. And what I actually learned was that I wasn't really attracting clients that were my ideal clients. I didn't build a business that was really like, I wasn't living life the way I wanted to live life. Um, I was sort of like chasing almost industry planted dreams or someone else's expectations. They weren't really my own. So when I found myself, I was probably... 27 or something, 26, 27 years old, probably making a lot of money for that age, right? I mean, it came out this was so long ago that adjusted for inflation, it'd be like probably making a million, million and a half dollars, you know, a year. And I was really unhappy, right? So and it, was, it was really hard to explain that to people at the time because I didn't really have like a network. My family, no one had money, like, you know, so it was, it was an awkward kind of situation. So yeah, I hired this business coach, marketing coach, Frank Kern, super funny guy. You know, he was kind of known as this sort of surfer slacker kind of guy you know that lived in san diego he kind of has hair like me yeah he's trimmed it up a little yeah he's trimmed it up a little now he's a bit older but um i remember being like man this dude looks cool and he looks like he's enjoying life and he he had this this exercise that he walked us through back then it's called core desires like the very first thing is like hey before we do anything else let's do core desires right and core desires is basically like 25 26 questions The, the premise was remove any limiting factors from your life. So don't say, oh, I would do this if my family wasn't all here in West Michigan, or I would do this if I didn't have these student loan debts, or I would do this if I didn't have, it's like, assume no limitations, just build your perfect day. You wake up, how do you wake up? What's the first thing you see? Is there anything you smell? If you look out a window, what's that like? Is there, you know, what's your day look like? Who are you spending it with? Like, what are you doing? You know, like, how are you feeling spiritually, physically, right? And it sounds very like new world at the time anyway, but I think today there's a lot more people mm-hmm. who kind of have these ideas around building lifestyle designs, we might call it, you know, today, but this was pre-dating a lot of that, you know, but I remember it being like this really life-changing exercise because after you finish it, then it's sort of like, okay, well, what would you have to do? Just, you know, what would you have to do in your business to live that life? You just, you know, sort of manifest, you know, through these questions, right? And to me, like, this is why it's so cool being on your podcast because, that was like doing business and doing life, right? And it started actually with like, let's talk about life first, you know, and like, what does that look mm-hmm. like? And so obviously if someone looked at my what I put on there, I was like, I like being active. I like being outdoors. I'm very casual by nature. So I've never really worn suits, ties, shaved, get maybe a haircut every couple of years, you know, type of thing. Really embrace, like, I'm going to give this a shot. You know, I'm going I'm to give it a try, right? And so part of that giving it a try was I'm going to move to California. I'm going to live boy, what I wrote, wrote out in that thing. I'm going to wake up. I want to see the ocean, smell the salt air. I want to create my schedule so that I'm able to be outdoors. I want to surf almost every day. I want to run. I want to spend, I want to be there for everything in my kids' lives. Yeah, they were, I had young kids at the time. <laughs> and I want to coach everything. I want to bring them to school. I want to, I want to do things and, and do life, right? Like that's what I wanted. You know, I didn't covet making millions of dollars actually. Now I realized I had to make a certain amount of money to build that lifestyle and to build that sort of freedom. But that was the kind of like the long-winded, like, how did that video come to be? Well, that video was me like starting off by documenting the journey. And I I, I left on December 26, 2007. 
uh, loaded up my car. I doc- took my dog Finley uh, with me, and and what's cool? So the video itself, we actually t- got like a you know map of the U.S. We kind of cut out a picture of that, like the Holiday Rambler from um, National Lampoon's, right? The Woody, the station yep. wagon. Yep. Created a little image with like my head on one side, the dogs on the other side, and we set it to the actual like Holiday Road, you know. And then every now and again, back then there was no like GoPros, there was no like easy like uh, mobile phones with good cameras like i had a flip mino for those who remember going way back like which one of the first handheld high definition cameras and i would just like hold it out and record part of the journey and then eventually i end up in california and i teach my first lesson to other advisors because i just i felt like you know i I felt so free pursuing this and i was like Mm -hmm. i have to tell other people what i'm doing and how i'm doing it right i want to document it like how did i because it actually took me about a year of preparing to make it happen. And one of the big parts of preparing was making my firm virtual because like, if I'm going to move across mm. the country, I've got to serve clients virtually. I've got to acquire clients virtually. I'm um, changed the way I do things because I want to have location independence, live wherever I want to live and build a business around, you know, sort of like these life pursuits that were really important to me. So, so that's how I started that that program was called MM1 method. And I kind of created a digital marketing platform. I built a huge advisor email list of people who I think it clearly it resonated with other advisors that probably were like unhappy and you know maybe they were successful but unhappy or maybe they were not even successful yet and unhappy like but they clearly were like I want to do something kind of like what this guy is doing. And so lots of people opted in. We gave away a number of free lessons, free videos, and then kind of culminated with doing some live uh, training, you know, and and you know that yeah set in motion a whole bunch of things that can now today are pretty big moments i didn't realize at the time you know but like i look back and like man they were pretty seminal moments so yeah obviously that video must have caught your eye as a fellow marketer and those circles you mentioned like the frank kearns the michael hyatt's we were we were following the same people early in our career trying to surround ourselves i think with people outside of the industry that could help us be better within the industry and so i think by nature we were like had this osmosis right the universe is sort of pulling us yeah well there's there's some lessons there the first one that comes to mind, because I, I signed up for a Frank Kern training and I don't remember what year. It was definitely after you had done it. And, but it was some of the video marketing stuff I was doing around the podcast and Infusionsoft, which I don't even know if it exists today. It's used to be like the quintessential email marketing system back in the day. But do you remember how much you paid for Frank Kern's coaching back then in 07? Yeah. So, I mean, I started by buying one of his like off the shelf courses. It was called mass control so mass control yeah, mass control i remember that yeah, mass control yeah. 2.0 these were like two thousand dollar mm-hmm. courses and they were shipped to you in the mail big yeah. binders a bunch of dvds you know you'd watch the videos do the, do the homework but yeah and then eventually i did his private coaching right and the private coaching it was i think in the neighborhood of like i'm sorry i didn't do his private coaching i did his group coaching his mastermind coaching so it was like a group yeah. of like 25 30 of us maybe and i think we were all paying five or six thousand a month again this is like yeah. around two thousand eight, nine, 10, you know, so yeah, legitimately that's like paying 10 plus thousand a month to in today's sort of dollars. I think there's a valuable lesson there and you were not afraid to invest into yourself. And I say yourself over business because that's really you showing up and learning that is what led to that evolution in your business. And that, I mean, I've been wired the same way and I, I find that's a core theme in many achievers, regardless of industry, finance or outside of finance. They're just the people that are willing to pay to get in the right rooms. And I think there's a really early lesson. I know there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast that think the same way, but that was not cheap. It's not cheap today. And it definitely wasn't cheap back then. But I mean, you're yeah. cutting a check 50, 60 grand a year for private coaching. And then look what it led to. And honestly, I think that was one of the reasons I was cold calling you because 
I don't remember how MM1, the website that you had back then, got on my radar, but I, I'm 99.9% sure it was one of my clients. It's like, hey, what do you know about this? And I'm like, that guy sounds familiar. And then it was like, hey, let's get him on the phone and let's figure what's figure out what's up. Is he doing any annuity business? Can it, can we recruit him in? And I think that was where we kind of struck up the friendship in the early days. And there's another thing that you hit on that I want to get your thoughts on. And one of the things we talk about it at Triad is playing the infinite game versus the finite game. I'm sure you're at least somewhat familiar with Simon Sinek's book, Infinite Game. And to me, you were looking at the infinite game in the early days. It was like, how do I design a business that serves my life? Like starting with the most important variables first, which is how do I want to live my ideal life and day and week? And then retrofitting the business around it, where to your point, when you first started out in this space, you're chasing the dollar you're redlining out. And it's kind of like the business is controlling the lifestyle. And what I've found is if you look at the infinite game, which is, can you ever like have too good of a business and too good of a life if that's done properly versus the finite game, which is chasing the premium each year, the revenue each year, the new assets each year. And it's like, oh, every year the the game starts over and I've got to run faster on the treadmill. You figured that out way younger and way earlier than most. Any thought process that went through that or any tips you could give a financial advisor, maybe redlining out a little bit on like how to course correct and, and play a different game than they've been playing in the past? Yeah. So I think um, so it's actually worth, worth noting too that like it was actually really hard to hit rock bottom. You know, so for me, like when I started, I had no money. I was so broke. Nobody in my family had like it was like so about that redlining. I felt like I ran that RPMs to the max for like four or five mm-hmm. years. And I reinvested almost every dollar back into the business to try to grow it, grow it, grow it, grow it. So it's so interesting. I'd say like one of the most simple pieces of advice I'd give people is if you find yourself in a hole, step one is to stop digging. And I think a lot of people, they the opportunity cost they create in their life makes it really hard for them to ever stop digging. So it's like, that's why they keep running the red lines. They think if I just keep going harder, if I just can get another $2 million case, if I can just get another $100,000 of revenue... That's just you continuing to dig and dig and dig and dig, you know? So for me, I had to hit a point where like I was completely exhausted, burnt out, questioning if I wanted to stay in this business. And I was 27 years old, you know, I was young and I was making great money and I did a bunch of dumb things that I, I didn't realize at the time, you know, like I bought a bunch of stuff thinking like, well, I've got the, I'm unhappy and I, but I've got this money now. So maybe if I buy a big fancy house or maybe if I buy a fancy car or, and no, that stuff is actually that important to me. But I think the sooner people can recognize that they're in a hole and then stop digging, which basically means like hard reset, do a bit of calendar bankruptcy and kind of go, what do I really want to spend my time on and get there fast? Um, don't be afraid of like mistakes. I think one of the funny things about this business, and hopefully if someone's had some success, they're listening here. One of the things that I had conviction in that it gave me the confidence to go take a risk and, and do that hard reset was I was like, I could always do this over again if I if I fail, what's the, like, what is the worst that could happen? I have to go back and rebuild again. I mean, that's not that hard. I know how to build. In fact, I could build it 10 times faster and better if I had to do it all over again from scratch. So like, what do I have to lose by pursuing something that actually is still great for society and, you know, great for clients, but also works for me. And uh, again, I say what happens. So it's easier. You always know this in hindsight, but it's very scary at that moment when you're like, okay, like, am I really going to do this? Like, this is, this is the craziest thing I've ever done. Like all your friends think you're nuts. Like I had all these friends mm-hmm. that thought I was completely out of my mind, like to walk away from, you know, kind of the life that I'd built and start over in a new state with no family, friends, 
connections, contacts, building a virtual business back before Zoom existed, right? Like, I mean, like these were all strange things to people, but we hit rock bottom, stop digging and move quickly because it's always going to seem scary at the time, but it's always in hindsight. You're like, one thing I regret is not doing this sooner. I can relate very closely to that. I mean, <laughs> just went through a, a similar transition myself that I think most people would say was absolutely crazy. But um, I think the key thing is um, I had a mentor tell me this once. They said, do the work first, like get crystal clear on what it is you want. And you mentioned the exercise with Frank Kern, the core desires. You got pretty damn clear on what Jason wanted before you left, right? Mm -hmm. And and the same thing for me, it probably took me two or three years, a lot of conversations with my wife, a lot of self-reflection. And I just got really crystal clear on what I wanted. And then the truth is, once you get there, that's almost like you're free. And I love the worst case scenario because the worst case scenario, like honestly, the way I look at it is if my family's healthy, I could be on a cardboard box on a street corner and things could be worse. You know what I mean? And I don't know. That's just the way I think. It's not necessarily a money thing. It's being surrounded by the people I love and I want to do life with. And so I just love kind of that mental exercise you just went through. So thanks for sharing that. All right. We have to get to Annuity Gator, our favorite website that reviews annuities. (laughs) And at the time, it wasn't my favorite website. So let's share a little bit of the story behind the origin story of Annuity Gator and you dropped something really cool you, before we went live here. You said, if it wasn't for Annuity Gator, I don't know that Altruist would exist today. So let's talk about Annuity Gator and then let's get to how that evolved and, and where you are today. So Annuity Gator still exists today. It's actually a very successful website that drives a lot of business to, uh, to financial advisors. But the origin story was basically, right? So when I said I moved to California, I had to build a virtual business. Like one of the things that I had to do is figure out how to serve my existing clients. So I, I hired some people to take care of most of the work in Michigan. But I kept some clients as my own personal clients. And one of the things I wanted to do is be able to serve them virtually. I thought one of the best ways to do that was to sort of asynchronously post information to my blog. So basically, like what I kind of in my mind, I thought, what do I talk about in meetings with these clients? Like if I'm sitting down with a client, like what am I really talking about? And it's like there, I, I felt like there's kind of like a framework that I was using, you know, it was in, in that framework, mm-hmm. like in its most simple form, is like three really key kind of questions that I'd be talking about with people. And it'd always be like, hey, what have you been doing that's working really well, like that you're pretty happy about, you're pretty pleased with? That's question one. Question two, hey, what, what's not going so well? You have any anxieties, concerns, you know, questions, stuff that I'm doing wrong, but, you know, that you could tell me I didn't improve, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then question three was, hey, if, is there anything you've been, you know, you've heard about, you've been thinking about, you have questions about, you know, maybe you maybe you even consider changing with your financial life, but you just haven't pulled the trigger yet. Yeah, maybe I can help you provide some clarity, right? So like, those are my three, three kind of questions. And so I, I found like, why don't I turn that into like how I write my blog? So my blog then became reaching out to clients and asking them about these three questions so I could then write articles and I could keep it like to where that way, like if I had a client meeting, it was sort of like most of the work was already done. It could be a 15 minute phone call or web meeting or whatever versus like an hour long session type of thing. Mm-hmm. So I pose these questions often. I'd send them out to clients. One of the clients actually, yeah, rest in peace names. And Bob was a rocket scientist, like legitimate rocket scientist that worked for GE Aerospace. And he was one of the smartest people I ever worked with in my career. And it's funny. So basically he sends, he responds to one of my queries. Hey, listen, I'm working on some new content. I want to make sure all my clients are feeling really good about their financial life. So if you don't mind, like, hey, here's my questions. Can you share anything in any one of the three, all three, right? That's happening in your life. Bob writes me back and it basically goes like this. He says, Hey, Jason, I know I, I know I shouldn't have, but I got an invitation for one of these free dinner seminars and I went to it and I know I shouldn't have, but they, Presenter made a pretty compelling pitch for this annuity, and 
So I signed up for an appointment and, um, and so now here I am, I've got all these questions and I've tried to do research. I can't find anything on the internet. Here's the way the product was described to me. Here's what it's called. What do you think? So it's funny, it's like, had I never moved to California and decided to do virtual work, I would have never done these queries. I may have never had this person say, hey, I've got these questions. And, and it was a very specific product. It was a secure income annuity with guaranteed lifetime withdrawal benefit rider. Now, whoever he was talking to, was sounds like they weren't the most honest ethical advisor on the planet. And they made it, they kind of pitched it up to be like, hey, your worst case scenario is essentially what the roll up, because 7% thing roll up, you know, but it, it wasn't really a 7% return, obviously. Yeah, it was just you know, how yep. they rolled up the income benefit um, pool. Anyway, so I started like working on an email back to Bob and I realized like he's, again, he's a really detailed engineer. So I was like, I went full-blown engineer mode myself and I built the spreadsheet and I did the analysis and I wrote all these descriptions. And then I was like, I should just publish this on my blog because if Bob, one of the smartest people I've ever met, successful guy, rocket scientist, if he doesn't know how this thing works and he's being confused by it, there must be some other people, maybe in my own client base or around the world, maybe they'd benefit from it too, right? So- yep. I published a review. I recorded a long video because I wanted to make sure people knew, like I knew what I was talking about. So I was like, here's all my sources. I went to this site. I pulled all this data. Here's how I you know, ran a query to extract the data, build it into a model. Here's how I ran all my return calculations. Here's how I did seven different simulations, like da, 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 right? Links to everything. Tried to make it really, really legit. And it was super helpful. Bob ended up, by the way, buying, investing in one of those annuities. But now he understood how it worked. And it wasn't a huge investment. The other person wanted to put like a million bucks in or something. He put like 150,000 or something, like just enough to get enough income stream to supplement his pension and social security to give him like the stable income that he and his wife wanted, right? So in some respects, I'm like, hey, this worked. He still got the annuity. It was the appropriate. He understood it. It fit within his financial plan, right? Everybody seemed to be happy. Uh, now, I would say everybody's happy because obviously the other thing that happened was that blog blew up. I started getting hundreds of inquiries every week, you know, from people around the country. Hey, here's my situation. And people were extremely detailed. I just sold my business. I've got $5 million. Um, I've met with six different financial planners. I don't know what to do. People, some people are saying to buy this. Some people are saying not to. I don't know who I can trust. You seem like you're really knowledgeable. Is there anything you can do to help me? Right. I'm like, well, this is weird. That's not how, that's not supposed to happen like that in our industry. Right. Cause it's supposed yeah. to be like the advisors constantly pursuing and selling and convincing, all of a sudden I had people coming to me, you know, just tons of money, tens of millions of dollars of opportunity every week, pretty much wanting to get on my calendar to see if I could help them. You know, it was really wild, right? The other calls that came in were very angry financial planners, insurance agents that were like, you cost me a big deal. You know, I'm going to come and get you and sue you and blah, 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 blah. Right. So I was kind of like, it just reminded me of like another Frank Kern note that I remember him saying, which is like something, I mean, but a Dan Kennedy note, but it was something like, if what you're doing is not offensive to at least some people, it probably doesn't matter to anybody. I think that what I was doing, it clearly was a, it was offending some people, but it was really helpful to a lot of people. And it really became the catalyst for like, you know, growth for my firm. And, and I remember that first year, you know, I ended up doing like just like three or four more annuity posts. Eventually, because I wanted to protect my anonymity, I took it off my personal blog, moved it to this annuity gator, which was like the annuity investigator. And I would write really long, detailed, nerdy engineer-like reviews with hour-long videos. So super long form content with a very simple CTA, which is like, hey, listen, if like you've been pitched this, it doesn't quite add up with how it's being described here. And you want to have questions, you want to talk to somebody, no sales pressure, you know, fill out this form and I'll see if I can get back to you within 24 to 48 hours, right? Like that was the pitch, right? And it works. So that's how Nudigator was born. Um, yeah, eventually there was so much demand that came in. I'd hire a couple other advisors to, to take care of all the, the clients. Um, 
And so that rekindled our connection because I think obviously you were very familiar with that product. And I think you probably had advisors going, Brad, what the hell? Shut this guy down. He's hurting yeah. my deals, you know, but, but suffice to say, it was a really good learning experience, even for the industry as a whole, because nobody had ever done like a review site before. Okay, like yep. a lot of the stuff I was doing at the time, like this was way before like Josh Brown and Barry Ritholtz. I mean, and it was actually yeah, well, driving. That, that, I think that product was 2010, if I remember right. I think yeah, that product rolled right. out in 2010. So, I mean, that was even Amazon back in the day. I'm sure they have the, the rating system, but not near to the reviews that they have today where you kind of right. gauge on whether or not you want to buy the product based on reviews. But I feel like now everybody's wired. I'm not buying any product till I read of, of substance until I read some sort of review. Look, on I don't even buy a t-shirt if it has like a three-star review. Like why would I, you know, it's yeah. like you want to only get stuff that has reviews and you see the star rating and whatever, like your bias is to ensure that others are happy with whatever the product service, et cetera. So it, I just mentioned Amazon and Amazon was really the inspiration behind writing the reviews because mm. their business model back then, and it still is partially like this today is that they, um, but back then they didn't have any of their own products, right? Like they were just a reseller. Yep. But what they built was like this incredible marketplace where they were able to build the largest amount of reviews and content. And what they what they knew is that serious buyers were looking for detailed information, right? So a serious buyer that was in the market for a TV wouldn't do a search for TV, right? Like television, like that wasn't how they searched. Instead, it would be like Vizio 75-inch ultra high definition, 7K smart TV, near me or whatever, some, some long tail, right? Like big, long query mm-hmm. into, into the search engine. And so that's where like my reviews worked really well is because it would be like, the title would literally be an independent objective review of the, you know, security benefit, secure income annuity with, you know, GLWB rider. And then like the first header two tag would be like SBLSIA, right? I use a different term that it might be applied to, you know, fees. Another one might be like, you know, potential returns, you know, income guarantees, right? So like there'd be all these long tail variations of the product. This is exactly how Amazon laid out their products back in the day. And it allowed them to sort of hijack the traffic. Now, of course, if they found a product sold really well, they would become a wholesaler of it or a manufacturer of it because they had all the data they knew, they, they knew what sort of sold. So Simple concept. I think there's a lot of these things that could still be done today really effectively if advisors were curious on how to build uh, internet marketing machines. Yeah. I mean, as you were talking about Amazon reviews, where I actually went to, I mean, that is essentially Morningstar, at least where Morningstar was born. It was like reviewing different mutual funds. It's like their five-star review system or however many stars they had. But it's just like another form of what was supposedly an independent review, right? Okay. So I want to, I want to circle back. So. We brought it up earlier and we talked about the biases that exist and all humans have biases. I mean, that just wired into us. It's Mm -hmm. kind of nature versus nurture, right? And so if you were nurtured up through a wirehouse, an insurance brokerage firm, a certain broker dealer, Ed Jones, Ameriprise, we could just keep, you know, naming all of the players based on your schooling, which was typically somehow tied to product distribution, right? If we're fully transparent. So you were trained to distribute a certain product selection or maybe a certain way that you were compensated, fee-based, commission-based, et cetera, et cetera. There's all kinds of different biases. You come up through this. And one of the things that was tying back to Annuity Gator is here is just an independent, because you were sourcing a lot of it. And it was just one of the things I love about math and numbers is they don't lie. It's just black and white. And so you saw this need. And what was interesting is you had insurance people 
distributing this product. You had some securities licensed people. There were a lot of fee-based RIAs that also distributed insurance products. There were BD channels. And what you did is you just said, here is the product, set it on the table. Now let's slice and dice it and talk about it. I love that. To me, that's fiduciary. That's a fiduciary standard. Let's let's throw the tool out on the table and let's just talk about the pros and cons and where it may or may not fit. One of the things we were talking yesterday, kind of preparing for this conversation, so easy to say, so hard to do in our space because you're fighting all these biases. You're fighting like what products you have access to. I truly believe our industry suffers from using fiduciary as a marketing term versus an actual definition like you would see, you know, legally obligated to do what's in your client's best interest. One of the things that I think we both share is like a a fiduciary should have as many possible tools, financial tools in their toolbox that are vetted by by something or regulated by something. And then a true fiduciary ideally should have access to as many tools as possible and then take as unbiased of lens as possible to figure out what can serve this client at the highest level and then construct the financial plan. Okay. First off, before I move on from there, anything you disagree with, and by the way, this podcast is not for everybody that say the same thing. If there's different pieces that you disagree with, let me know. Like if we start of that from a base kind of understanding thoughts there, disagreements there. No, I mean, I mean, look, I think it's the most simple form of a fiduciary is someone who's supposed to put their client's interests before their own. So they should try to remove the best they can any biases that they might have. But I 100% agree that we all do come up and people have their bias. And I think even outside of our industry, I think that it's actually pretty well documented that by the time we hit certain ages, like our biases become so strong that it's very hard for us to ever change. And so I think this is why you have like these like social media battle royales of people who like they believe their way is the right way and they're not open-minded to anyone else's way. And, you know, like at the end of the day, I used to use this saying a lot, a lot when I was in private practice, but I would tell people, you know, financial plans are really interesting. Like the best financial plan for everybody is one that works. Like it gets you the results that you want and you feel comfortable with, because if you don't feel comfortable with it, you can't stick with it. It doesn't matter. Right. So like, this is where I think these biases are tough because you could make almost any plan work, right? So someone could be like, I'm hardcore fee only, advice only, I'm hourly only or whatever, right? And they could build a plan that would in a one dimensional world that would work just fine. I know advisors who are insurance license only, all they sell is fixed index annuities, income annuities, MIGAs, et cetera. And you can build plans that will work. Like it'll get the client the outcome they want. Like it'll, meaning like their goals, it'll hit their income goals and mm-hmm. you know whatever, not everyone's going to feel comfortable with them, right? So it's like, there's lots of like, you know, kind of personal biases our clients have, right? From their own experience, their parents' experience. Yes, yes that's a good point. You know, I think it's it's really important if to me, a great fiduciary advisor is they should be extremely flexible and not try to cram everybody into one box that's like their bias box, right? It should be, you know, unless, unless they're transparent about it, which is like, listen, I offer fiduciary advice to this very defined niche client, you know, and they all get the same solution but I'm, I reject 90% of the people who want to work with me because they don't fit into the solution I offer. I don't know too many people that are telling 90% of their prospective clients to go somewhere else. You know, So so I think like no matter what we, what we do, yeah, I 100% agree with you that the right approach is one where you have like a lot of options and you try to bespoke the solution for what works for the client and they feel comfortable and they're going to stick with it. If you can't do those two things, then I'm not sure you're being a real fiduciary. We were talking about advisor biases, but it's so true. The client or the prospect also work, walks in with their own biases. 
And if there are certain biases they have, they might eliminate some of the tools out of the toolbox for you. And I think a great advisor helps anybody work through those. And you're obviously going to try to educate, but sometimes the, there's certain things that are just had a bad experience with that thing, never using yeah. that thing again. There are people, okay. I remember in the annuity gator days, right? Because obviously a lot of these people, they were doing research on annuities. They probably had some insecurity around market risk. And think about that time period, 2010, you know, this is shortly after the financial crisis, people were still licking their wounds pretty badly. Yeah. There were people who, if you just asked them very sort of like, listen, how comfortable do you feel with money in the stock market? And there were definitely people who were like, I would never put a penny ever in the stock market. If I look at a statement that's down even a penny in a month, two months, three months, whatever time period, I can't do that again. Yep. Like I'm, I'm, I'm too deep of wounds. I have too much scar tissue. I'm not going there. And a lot of planners would be like, well, that's not what's best for you though. And so let me go ahead and prescribe. And I used to you know, coach advisors and I'd say, listen, I think we all know that we should probably maintain a balanced diet. We should get lots of sleep, drink lots of water, probably best not to you know, drink too much alcohol or partake in you know, crazy drugs and dangerous activities, right? Like we all know like what should be a healthy lifestyle, you know? But the reality is like, there are clients that are gonna come to you and say, listen, Brad, I love cheeseburgers. The cheeseburger is my mana from heaven. That's what I really want. And if the advisor's sitting there being like, Great, but let me con- let me change your mind and get you to love salads, Brad. Like that client's never going to hire you, right? So instead, yep. it's like, okay, well, what could you offer them? Maybe just maybe just blow their mind with the greatest cheeseburger in the history of cheeseburgers, right? And make it with the best ingredients and you know freshest, you know, whatever preparation, et cetera. That client's going to be better off, I suppose. And you know, you deliver to them like something they feel comfortable with. And again, many advisors, like I think, they push their opinions on their clients. They talk about what they think is important. They, you know, they do seminars, podcasts, blogs, whatever on what they think is valuable. And they kind of forget that at the end of the day, the easiest thing to do is just find people who are, I mean, it's like a Ray Kroc story, right? Where he'd say like, Hey, what's the secret recipe? If you want to have a successful McDonald's franchise and all the franchises are like great location, unlimited marketing budget, best food. He's like, you just need hungry people just have a lot of hungry customers, they'll buy lots of food from you, right? Um, and I think as advisors, we sometimes forget that probably the bias that matters the most is the clients. And as a default, they will 100% like opt out of certain product services. And then so why bother? Like you're just wasting your time in theirs and they're probably never gonna, even if you can convince them to do what you're telling them to do, they're the type of people who are going to become very, very hard to work with down the road because they're going to have reluctantly agreed to what you sold them and every opportunity they can to second guess and rub it in your face and try to get out of it or create problems, they likely will. So it's just best to be a fiduciary and ask people you know, what's important about money to them. Yeah, I think what's cool there, because it's like Ray Kroc, you bring that up, which by the way, the founder, incredible movie. Very entertaining, great business lessons. The book, I think it's grinded out, also stellar read. So maybe we throw those in the show notes, but a lot of lot of lessons for McDonald's. Instead of creating a product and then selling it and forcing it on people, I mean, one of the coachings I got when I started my original podcast, it was, who's your audience? And I remember I cut the first couple episodes and there was a guy in our mastermind group. He's like, hey, I'm in IT security and I love that episode. Why are you narrowing it so narrow to financial advisors? And the coaching I got, which was spot on at the time, they're like, hey, figure out your niche and who you want to serve at the highest level, because that's going to dictate the guests you have on, the questions you ask, 
how you market it, everything that, that the end consumer of the show will dictate that versus you doing these shows and trying to force people to listen to them. And that's the same concept you're talking about here. And by the way, if you have a good show, guess what? People are going to hear it and they're like, I'm not a financial advisor, but I'll listen to that anyway. So it doesn't actually keep those people from listening, but um, couldn't agree more. And I've seen that play out just in my own journey in podcasting is figure out the hungry people. I love your analogy. And then how do you build a product that serves those people versus build the product and then try to shove it down people's throats? Cause that that's not as fun. Right. So cool. Well, we're time's flying, dude. And we, we haven't even got to altruist yet. So we better <laughs> at least get to your latest venture. Okay. So, so we, we go through this journey. Let's tie the annuity gator and altruist together. So there was a learning there for you that you said, hey, that was probably maybe the inflection point of why I'm at altruist today. Can you tie those two together and then we'll see where it goes from there? So, so what happened was um, with annuity gator, that was really the first time that I should say like the work I did with MM1 got me exposure to other financial advisors. I'm actually by nature pretty, pretty reclusive. Like I don't go to a lot of conferences and really enjoy my privacy and time at home, my family. And so, so MM1 kind of forced me into doing some events and spending time with our advisors. And, and then that project kept going for like five, six, seven years. So over that time period, I launched a new Gator, kind of built this whole really persona anyway, as being someone who really understood the early days of digital marketing for financial advisors. And so inevitably what ended up happening was kind of those things merged, uh, meaning advisors kept being like, well, how do I just plug into what you're doing, right? And so they were interested in how do I use the marketing that you're doing? And then they learned a little bit about my private practice. And I was using this sort of formulaic approach to building financial plans and doing tax location and managing assets for clients and you know, built a lot of our own technology um, to, to sort of make the client onboarding experience really easy and delightful. And so I started a company called Formula Folios, um, which was like really my first real like B2B to C. So it was an, an RIA, people would call it a TAMP, I guess, today. This was in 2011. And uh, when I launched, I started in 2012 and I first started taking other advisors and it took off like really fast, you know, so went from zero to hundred million pretty quick, from hundred million to a billion pretty quick, a billion to two billion really, really quick. And then like two to three, three to four and so forth. Um, and really, the, the pitch was simple, right? I was telling advisors, like, look, what I've done is I've got two really interesting, maybe valuable things to people. One is the systematic digital marketing approaches to help you get more prospects and clients, and then a you know sort of turnkey business management platform to help it, you onboard the clients. A lot of advisors that we worked with, given the annuity gator type of background, they had insurance licenses, and so end up doing a partnership with an FMO. Uh, they had a ton of advisors that you know were very eager to kind of learn the advisory, the wealth management side of the business, but they also wanted to still be able to you know sell and use uh, FIAs predominantly and other annuity products, insurance products, but but they wanted to use those as well. And so it was this really interesting time, right? But I, I grew a very large RA platform serving other financial advisors, and what I learned in that experience was like operating at scale, you know, opening whatever fifty to one hundred accounts a day at a traditional custodian was really painful, you know, managing the back office for 300 financial advisors and 50,000 end clients is really painful, you know, so like opening an account and, you know, some of this predates even DocuSign, even when DocuSign came alive, like it was still hard. Like you had like, you know, double digit low teens, um, NIGO rates to call, you know, not in good order where accounts wouldn't open for some reason or ACAS wouldn't fill for some reason or checks would get lost. And so <clears throat> what I learned anyway was like, uh, Hey, this is, uh, super painful for a firm at scale. I also learned that 
if an advisor was still in the early part of their career, they shouldn't be doing a lot of this administrative operational stuff. It's a total waste of their time and effort. It keeps them from really spending time, more time with prospects and clients. And the, the hair that broke the camel's back, I forget the exact year that they really came on the scene, but it was when Robinhood came out. And uh, let's just say that happened probably 2015 or 16. And I remember like downloading the app, opening an account, putting whatever, 100 bucks in it, and then buying fractional shares with no commissions on a phone. And I'm like, this is bonkers that we as advisors managing billions and billions of dollars for clients are still having to you know, open accounts in a really old-fashioned way, fund them in a really old-fashioned way. We have to buy all this other software to do things like trading at scale. And we still can't do it back then. There was still no commission-free trading. Fractional shares didn't exist. you know. So I, I just, it really started to irk me that I was like, you know, advice is going to have a hard time ever fully scaling. Meaning like, how do we get more people to be able to hire an advisor? Because a lot of people would love help, but advisors have generally high minimums because they all operate on some type of subscale environment. Like there's a trade-off of people on your team to households you can serve. And I just felt like that's nuts, right? And those who followed Robinhood's journey know that they went from zero to 3 million accounts really fast, three to 10 million really fast, 10 to 20 million really fast. But like, think about how crazy it is that they opened more accounts in like five years than companies like E-Trade did in 30, you know? And like, it, it, so there's really interesting, like if you build a really incredible user experience, and I, in my mind, I thought I want to build a B2B version, like a really incredible digital first custodian. I thought about doing it kind of internally within my old company, but it's just, it's really hard if you're, if you have a bunch of legacy kind of people processes and technology and like the right approach would be like, let's start this from scratch with no customers, no need to support customers. Like, let's just like take the year and a half, two years to really focus on R&D and building like that first version of the product. So that's the genesis story. I mean, but again, like interestingly, like had I not done things like MM1, had I not done that move across the country, had I not done Nudie Gator, I don't know that I would have been able to build a successful RIA. And I can tell you that if you're building a really meaningful fintech company, um, so a company like Altris, which, you know, we've raised almost $300 million in funding, you know, to build the company, I think, probably by an order of magnitude or two, you know, the most successful fintech company in the history of financial advice for advisors, that is like wealth tech. I don't think anything is even like remotely in the same stratosphere in terms of how quickly we scaled up the users, the accounts, the assets, the revenue, like every metric that matters, frankly, it's like just like a decade faster than almost everyone else, you know? So that takes a lot of money. That's why we had to raise $300 billion, right? To build this and to really go and do something. It's also a huge problem, right? Like the, the players in custody, are hundred plus billion dollar companies, you know, manage, you know, with you know multiple trillions in assets, you know. So these are like monstrously big entrenched companies that have been around for 50 plus years. You know, these are not easy things to disrupt. So in order to have the confidence to go after that market, in order to have the credibility to raise the capital, in order to be able to recruit the team, like um, I had to have built my last company, Formula Folios, which is a very successful company that I eventually sold, sold had a really good good exit there. But um Without building that, I could have never done this. Um, like you just, I wouldn't have had the credibility, the experience, the confidence, et cetera. I would have never built Formula Folios had I not done Nudigator because Nudigator really is what gave me the credibility in the advisor's eyes that they wanted to join a platform that I had built because I, mm-hmm. I had eaten my own cooking. Like I wasn't just talking the mm-hmm. talk, but I was able to say, I built a firm from scratch to 100 million. I built a firm from scratch to a, you know to a billion. I built a you know two firms now actually to over a billion in assets. Um, and did all those things before I was 35 years old, um, you know, from scratch, no help from anybody, no outside investors, nothing, right? Those stories were so important to be able to then 
you know, pitch and receive the funding to then go recruit the team, start building uh, what is now Ultra. So still a lot of work to be done, but it's um, not lost on me that uh, there's these sayings for who to give credit to. But yeah, most startups, you know, they it takes them about 10 years to really become meaningful. And yet most people don't know anything about them until they're 10 years old. So it's like one of these things where it's like they're the the, the longest overnight success stories, right, that, that you'll ever hear of, right, are, are successful startups because most people don't realize like even a company like Altruist, like the groundwork for this company was like the 10 years before I started all the stuff I did before that. And then it's like in the four and a half years since founding it. So in, in many ways, you know, it's a 15 year journey to get to where we are today. And we still have like so much work to be done. So kudos to the SBL team. Had they not created that product that then, you know, got distributed by your old company and and then my client didn't go to that seminar, but who knows? You might yep. have been the one who wrote the copy to that seminar ad that they actually went to. Who knows, right? I mean, like these the words very six degrees. Uh, of it is crazy. Those little forks in the road all along the way. It's crazy how things work out. And, and I feel it was cool hearing you share that because I feel like my chapter before this, the 15 years, like I wouldn't be here today. And a lot of that's the learnings I had along the way. You mentioned something on altruist that was kind of a philosophy. You called it the flywheel approach. Mm -hmm. I believe borrowed from Jim Collins. Can you talk through that? Because I think that's a really cool framework that I think some are familiar with, some aren't, that your version of that could apply to other firms here as they think through their practices. Yeah, totally. So I think like, um, you know, I'm a big fan of of studying (laughs) other great businesses and trying to learn from the best we can. We're, We're really, really lucky here that one of our investors as one of our strategic investors is Vanguard, one of our individual investors and board members is Bill McNabb, the former chairman and CEO of Vanguard. And he actually worked very closely with Tim Collins and the team that put together good to great and um, on Vanguard's flywheel, right? And so I think people don't realize like using Vanguard first to then go into Altruist, to give some perspective on a company like Vanguard, right? They just celebrated their 50th year, um, I think last year. To my knowledge, they're either number one or two. It kind of changes by the day, but in terms of largest asset managers in the world, market movements can can fluctuate, but I think they're north of 8 trillion in, in assets. Um, so just a monstrously big, successful company. And at the core at, at Vanguard, like the one thing all of their crew, as they call them, they have a very nautical theme, as you can imagine. Um, so their, their team, their, they call it their crew, they all can recite. They know exactly what moves the needle at Vanguard, right? So I, it's, it's in the book, but I, so I may mess it up a little bit by recall here, but by recall theirs is their number one thing that they actually strive for is that they want to have, um, so their flywheel, think of it like a wheel, right? It's got a spoke. So the first spoke is have the lowest cost in the entire industry. I think their metric is they, they're trying to drive the average cost of service under 10 basis points across all their products. They believe by having the lowest cost, that lets them drive Flywheel number two, right? It's the next um, kind of uh, metric, which is the best returns because they believe that low cost will increase the returns for their customers. So if they can have the lowest cost, they can drive the best returns. By having the best returns, they can have the happiest customers, right? They'll have the highest um, NPS and engagement among their customers. By doing that, they're going to drive more share of wallets so more assets onto their platform. By driving more assets to their platform, they can further reduce their cost and then they can further improve their performance, which will further improve the outcomes and happiness of their customers, which will allow them to drive more assets. And you can kind of see how a flywheel spins, right? It's hard to get it moving, but man, once it does, it starts to really chug along. And and, and so it's very simple, right? They're, they're flywheels. So we, we learned a lot from them. We started thinking about, you know, with Altruist, our mission is making advice better, more affordable and accessible to everyone. So like, what would matter? What should we track? And if you don't track it, it doesn't matter. So 
what should be tracking and working towards. And everybody at our company knows 100% exactly what our flywheel is. They know what all the metrics are as far as the numbers. You know, ours at the very core, the center of it is our team. So we measure internal engagement. You know, we've got 350 people. We want our engagement score to be above 90. So we want people highly engaged. They are mission-driven. They want to be here. They understand that if we win, if we do well as an organization, millions of people who otherwise could never get access to advice will get access to advice, good advice. Um, they'll get better outcomes with their money, right? So like there's the real kind of fervent belief that that team has to be engaged and follow the, you know, believe in the mission, work hard towards it. Our first metric, you know, that we track. Hey, before we get off that, Jason. How do you track that? How do you monitor that voice engagement? So we use a tool called Culture Amp internally. So we do regular surveys of our team. And and specifically, so we do performance reviews. We believe really deeply in having an engaged team. So um, one-on-ones with every team member. So depending on who the reporting lines are, your one-on-ones. Beyond that, we do every six months full in-depth performance reviews. And then we do quarterly engagement surveys. So it's like a 15, 16 question, you know, takes employees about five minutes, but just gives us like feedback. Like, and it's everything from like, do they feel like they're making a contribution? Like, do they feel like their work matters? Like, you know, do they, do they have work-life balance? Like, do they feel like they're being cared for at a human level and therefore like are able to give their best work, you know? So are we being innovative enough? Are we challenging the status quo? Like, are we moving fast enough? You know, cause speed is important when you're a small company relative to huge incumbents. So lots of like simple, quick questions and it gives us then an overall rating to be able to tell, to tell, okay, where are we, where are we doing well overall, this top line engagement? And then like, okay, what are the subcomponents that we can work on and improve on to drive the top number up, right? So, and if you don't measure it, it doesn't matter. If it doesn't matter, it's not going to get better on, on its own. So, so that's kind of what we use there. So, so then you, you take that team, right? And then you get them, hey, you tell the team, listen, like if we can do these few things, right? The, for us, our, our number one thing is build a highly innovative product. We measure that by what's called a PSAT, product satisfaction rating. There's like a half dozen elements of product satisfaction that we we query our customers all the time. They know all the time that we're asking them like, hey, um, we noticed you opened seven new accounts. Um, tell us about your counting process. Was it fast? On a scale of one to 10, like, you know, was it easy? Was it fast? Was it delightful? Did your clients get through with no issues? And so, you know, we're, we're trying to get a nine or better on every single one of those elements. And to us, that's a, if we do that, that's a highly innovative product that our customers really love. An innovative product will drive better outcomes for those advisors. So our metric there is a 90% improvement in price or a 10x improvement in efficiency for our advisor customers. So can they reduce their cost by 90% or more or increase their efficiency by 10x, right? So this might mean they go from 30 minutes to open and onboard a new client to two minutes. Cool. We've satisfied our 10x improvement there. They used to be paying 20 grand a year in software fees to some other non-integrated software app. They had to tack onto their custodian with altruist. It's maybe free or it's a few hundred dollars. Boom, 90 plus percent savings there, right? Staff savings, 90 plus, you know, savings. So, so that, that is a big part of the flywheel. Um, we believe if we provide all that advisor value, we can also codify a bunch of work that makes client outcomes better. So we aim for 2% improvement annually for all the end clients of advisors. Just by codifying best practices around like tax management, you know, risk management, even just things that are otherwise uh, quite sound simple, but keeping people committed to their plan by having great, easy communication, like a really delightful mobile app, like easy automated email alerts, like things that'll help a client feel more connected to their money. So they then, you know, stay more committed, personalization, lower costs. You know, we have fractional shares, right? So like we're, we, we track all of this stuff, right? And our goal is like, and we every year deliver 2% better <clears throat> results you would never get if you didn't use Altruist, right? So Anybody's core team, again, at the center of the flywheel, they're focusing on building a highly innovative product that delivers great economic outcomes, you know, for the advisor, 
great economic outcomes to the clients. Ultimately, that leads to our last, you know, sort of spoke, which is highly pleased, sort of happy promoters of the business. So we measure that via NPS score, net promoter score. And if those customers are really happy, they're going to add more assets to the platform. With more assets, we generate more revenue. With more revenue, we can invest in more R&D, which helps build a more innovative product, delivers bigger savings to advisors, better outcomes for customers, happier clients, which then deposit more money, which allows more innovation, right? So that's the flywheel approach. But I think like what's cool about this is we built this all around our mission. And I think like this is part of, I'd say like a do business, do life, you know, kind of mantra would be, it's really hard. Like if you, if you start pounding that drum, it's going to feel really empty if the work you do doesn't matter, right? Like, you know, so I think it's really, really key that people start to think about, well, what happens if I'm successful? Like, what's the outcome if I'm successful, you know, and if this works? And so with a company like Altruist, we named it Altruist, right? Like, which is almost the definition of a fiduciary. Like, we want to put others before ourselves. We want to build a platform that allows others to get phenomenal outcomes. So if we win, if that means that millions of people save billions of dollars in taxes and tens of billions of dollars in fees and ultimately closes the wealth gap in America and allows us to really make big impact in different communities all over the country, that's pretty worthwhile. Like that's a, that's something I want to get up and go do every day and be excited about every day and build a team that's excited about every day. If the mission is like, go make tons of money, that's not really doing much for me. And for most people, yeah. almost anybody's going to eventually get tired. It's just not inspiring. Your team won't rally around it. So I think for us, like the flywheel is a really good way to measure what matters, but all of those metrics, they're not like metrics. None of them you'll notice are like make more revenue. <clears throat> have bigger profits, do a big quarterly dividend, buy a new McLaren, get a private jet, right? What, like none of that shit matters. You know, like that's not important to me. It might matter to other people. So I would say like they should do what matters to them, but it's just not important to me. So I'm going to build a company and a culture built around a mission that really matters. And then I want to build metrics on my flywheel that like we're hell bent on like improving those metrics. We are really close by the way, but they should be by default. Those have read, you know, good to great. They should be stretch goals. They should be really hard to hit. And you should, as soon as you hit them, that means you need to start reaching higher. And, you know, Vanguard's done that with theirs as well. So, uh, yeah, a little lesson from Jim Collins that, you know, kind of applied to Altruist. But I think every business could find their four or five things that matter. Um, hopefully, again, built around a purpose that's inspiring. And that makes it a lot easier to integrate, like, the business and life components where I love the people I work with. I love the work I do. My family loves being involved in the work I do because they get it too. Like, they're fully aware, like, my kids fully appreciate, understand the importance of the work that we're doing, which is hard to believe, you know, that like teenagers would even care about this stuff, but they do. If you do happen to work a long day or two, which I work a lot, I really love working, but it doesn't make, it doesn't result in burnout. Yeah. Which, whereas I think if you're just like doing something, making the rounds, running hard, but not really understanding why, and your family doesn't like it, like almost always you're going to have some serious problems. Yeah. The the other thanks for running through all that. I didn't want to interrupt because it was. No, I love I love how you tied it together too. It's like, hey, here's here's a lesson I took from Vanguard. Obviously, who's a the, the guy that helped make that come to life is helping. Obviously, on your side as, as a believer in what you're doing on Altruist. So it's cool, and that's the thing. I think in business, there's so many lessons, all the books, all the business lessons out there that oftentimes people ignore and just try to figure it out themselves. It's like. No, this worked for them. Now let's apply it to what we're about. Another thing about that flywheel that I love is once you get the momentum, that perpetual wheel of motion where it like all of them assist the next one and it gets going faster. So I love that that framework. Um, I know our time is close to the end here. A couple of final thoughts here. We've talked about kind of everything present day. 
I do know you have a big conference coming up and they're asking you about innovation, AI tools. So maybe not the long version because we don't have a ton of time, but you've looked at the future with Altruist and where things are going. But if you kind of future casted, there's not a day where chat GPT doesn't pop up on, you know, some stream that I'm on. Let's just go out 10 years. What are some things if you're an advisor that you should be thinking about if you want to be a business that matters 10 years from now, in your opinion? Yeah, I think there's um so I think there's there's some that are technology related and some that are not. I think one I think one of the things that's going to be important is that we've been hearing about this for decades. Like you and I are about the same age. We've been in the business a long time. So I'm sure we've heard about like the great wealth transfer, but it's just it's not transpired yet. Well, it's going to. Like people do eventually die, right? So I think one thing that advisors would be really smart to be thinking about is how can they serve some clients that are Gen Xers right now? Like they better build a Gen X book of business or they're gonna have a hard time in the next 10 years, you know, because you know, and Gen Xers, by the way, are, yeah, so the oldest ones are in their 50s, like mid 50s, you know, so it's like these are like young clients anymore, like, um, but I think that generationally advisors better build more than just a retirement focused business, um, because over the next decade, we're going to start to see a lot of those older silent generation, great generation, like they're going to start passing away. Their kids are going to be primarily Gen Xers, uh, maybe older millennials. And almost every study that's ever been done on this shows that the vast majority of inheritors don't keep their parents' financial advisor. They move to somebody new. So I would go ahead and get the clients that will inherit the money um, and make sure you have at least a roster of that if you want to have longevity in, in your business. I think technology-wise, I was a big skeptic for a long time on on certain products like you know crypto and certain digital assets I thought like was a solution looking for a problem for the most part. I feel very differently about AI. You know, I feel like this is... They're very, this is very real. And uh, yeah, I think, I don't think anything's going to happen. It, like some of the stuff will take a while to happen. I think that some of the end customers, it's going to take a while before they even warm up to it um, and clients it is. But I think the majority of like the work your staff does and a lot of the work advisors do, you'll be able to have AI do it for you. Like it just, you know, the, the human, this a human capital required to build and run a successful financial planning advisory firm, I think will change dramatically in the next 10 years. I think it'll, it might take a while. It, might, it could take longer because our industry is really bad at innovation and they they work really slowly. So the fact that like major custodians and major insurance companies <clears throat> still oftentimes require like medallion stamps, signature guarantees and stuff, it's just a good reminder that it was going to take our industry probably maybe 10 years longer than like the rest of the world, you know, the rest of other, the you know, kind of the economy. But, um, but, but it's definitely coming. And so I think like, what do you have to do today? Not really much, but uh, you know, be be wise to those things. Like, don't overinvest in antiquated technology that's built on like kind of like mainframes that haven't been updated in twenty or thirty years, because you're going to find yourself in a really tricky spot. Largely just because like the, the two big benefits I think that AI will bring and and big changes that will happen on that front will be you'll be able to serve a lot more customers. So if you can build a incredible marketing machine, which I think an incredible marketing machine today. It's going to be a lot different than what it was. Like, I think like what I did with Indicator, by the way, I, I don't think that'll exist anymore in 10 years because what do you need it for? You'll be able to pop into BARD or GPT and just ask whatever questions you want and get whatever answers you want. It'll be pretty accurate in the next few years. Um, mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. content marketing with copy will become kind of a thing of the past. But I think podcasts, video, like, you know, these are harder for AI to disrupt, I think. Um, it might take longer. I think a lot more people will consume and meet their clients that way. I think um, even some social media will become a lot more important to advisors than it maybe have been in the past. Authentic media where like you connect, people like to really feel who you are and know you're not a robot, right? So I think those things will be important. And face-to-face work, I think will become really important um, again, you know, because like how will you 
differentiate from a robot, well, you know, you're human. So go do the things that a robot can't do, right? And and so I think there's things that become pretty important because I think if you build the right marketing machine, like if you want to, you'll have the ability with these tools to serve 10, 20, 30 times as many customers. And you may have to like serve a lot more because price compression may come down a lot. You know, I think with some of this innovation, we may find a world where, you know, things just change, you know, and, and that's okay. Like, I'm pretty excited about that. I think, again, like we have right now, to my knowledge, it's about 30 million people in the United States who have expressed they would like to have a financial advisor, but they can't afford one or can't find one. So AI can really help us solve that problem and like just more broadly get people access to great advisors, but it will be things like, you know, onboarding and, a lot of the planning work and, you know, thought work, you know, this sort of like, you know, knowledge work, I guess, as people call it, like it, I'm not trying to be a doomsayer, but like, we're not even remotely as smart as these large language models are like, they're, they're so much more capable and they're still in the very early days of their training. So like over the next handful of, you know, years, even months, I mean, like it's, it's almost weekly, the evolution of things that are possible. And so given years and given like significant GPU investment, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, kind of mind-blowing, like what's possible. Now, will it get built? Time will tell. But those are my innovations. One is don't sleep on clients that are Gen Xers or old millennials. I think they're going to be really important to your business over the next decade plus. And then be reluctant to use AI uh, when it's built by companies that their product today sucks. Their AI is probably going to suck too. But know that there's going to be there's going to be some innovations that come out that advisors, I think if, they, if they're smart, build a really elegant marketing machine that gives you a huge top of funnel and the ability to serve more people should you choose because the technology will become available down the road. It's pro- probably most of the stuff today is not not even really that useful for advisors, but like the stuff in the next two, three, five years will be. It won't matter though if you don't have a client acquisition machine. So I'd be like heavily focused on building a really good client acquisition machine. Good stuff. Well, thanks for that. Just download out of Jason's brain. I always appreciate yeah, sure. how you think about that. What's interesting, I look back like look at the back in the days where people were trading paper stocks in a pit, you know, the stock traders. And then if you look at like the stock broker of back in the day, it was very obscure information. Like the only way I think Warren Buffett, that was, there was something I read about him. He used to go to libraries and like get these like super thick volumes so he could read about company information and, you know, figure out what was a good buy at the time. And obviously all of that evolved where it's on the internet, which is why there's not stock brokers really around anymore. And so as we look at this evolution of just the, uh, it's really the de- democratization of financial information and AI is going to just put that on steroids and accelerate that. I love one of the points you made there at the end, which is like, what can a robot not do? They can't like sit face to face, break bread with another human. I mean, at least to this point. And I think one of the things you pointed out earlier is if all the information's there and all the, hey, chat GPT build a CFP standard financial plan based on these inputs. Like there will be a day where it's like, boom, and it happens instantly. But a plan is only as good as it's stuck to. And the human psychology element of, hey, the market's down, don't freak out and sell everything. Mm -hmm. I think that will be one of the last things to go. You know, I'm sure eventually AI will figure out how to be your therapist too. But I mean, I think that's one of the things to be thinking about as a financial advisor is how do you start to do that at scale potentially where it's not just a one-to-one conversation, um, but kind of the human psychology element as well. Totally. Yeah. So, I think there'll be a lot of services too that like, it's kind of funny. I've met with some big firms over the last decade or so. And some of them, they'll say like, well, our differentiation is like, you know, we have all the services in-house, tax, estate, financial, investment management. And I'm like, think to myself, Soon you'll, I, I think those are some areas that'll be disrupted pretty quickly, like tax returns, tax planning, estate planning, like that's already close within two to three years. I'm pretty confident that every financial planner will be able to offer their clients like almost family office like services 
by using technology, right? Not by buying mm-hmm. companies and putting a bunch of people together. You'll just be able to be like, yeah, no, listen, for all my clients, like we do this super comprehensive service where we take care of your taxes, your estate, like, you know, your financial planning, investment income planning, insurance analysis, right? But really it'll be like some type of, won't be a general artificial intelligence, like a very much a, a trained, you know, kind of closed network, but but it won't be hard. You know, I think that's actually sooner than people realize. Like I, I suspect like inside of five years, maybe even inside of two years b- before a lot of those services will be pretty much um, kind of standard. And, you know, future generations, like they'll just accept that as normal. My grandfather, rest in peace, would probably not sit in a Tesla and let it drive him around. It would freak him out, right? But if he was alive, he'd be like a hundred. My one and a half year old will probably never drive a car, right? He'll never yep. know what it's like to actually sit behind the meal. He'll, he won't even know what an, an internal combustion engine is probably, right? Like, yeah. So we just have to keep in mind that like, if we want to have a generation proof business, like, you know, you can't just hold on to the old ways of doing things forever. Like eventually your clients will expect something that is just a more modern experience. So anyway, this has been a ton of fun. Thanks for uh, letting me, uh, you know, share the past, reminisce a bit, talk about what we're building today, and then a little dream casting about what might happen over the next decade. Yeah. Well, one closing thought, just because this is do business, do life. You've hit on this, but if you had to define Here's what do business, do life means to Jason Wink. How would you package that up? I think ultimately it's being incredibly content and happy, you know, with your entire life, you know, your work and your non-work life. So, and that's incredibly subjective, you know, so some people that may be now known to work 10, 15 hours a week and then volunteer my time or do all the work with my kids. I mean, what I've learned, so I've done all of those things where I've like really not worked, worked hundred hours a week, but I find, I think that people can find their happiness like that's just such a great rewarding pursuit. And uh, it's never the same for any two people. But to me, like that's about the ultimate, you know, and it's a real privilege if you get there, right? Because so many people are yeah. miserable and won't even know where to begin. So I think the work you guys are doing to really champion that it's okay to want more. And by wanting more, I think just want more happiness. Like that's ultimately like what you should pull down to. And that could be very subjective, you know, again, um, and, and if you do it together with other people, other like-minded people, I mean, many hands makes light work. And one of my favorite sayings, again, I don't know where to even give credit to on it, but is um, that you become the average of the people you spend the most time with, you know? So have a network, have a group of people that thinks the same, it sees the world kind of the way you do. And again, maybe it's a whole group of people in pursuit of happiness, doing business, doing life together. Like you're probably going to find you're happier, you know, which I mean, what, what more could you ask for, right? You know, than to like, you know, live a life that feels highly fulfilled and and makes you feel content. Like you're making a difference. You're present for your family. Like, you know, your meaningful work for your customers. Like, I mean, like these are all things like to me anyway, that's what drives happiness. Well put on the spot too. It's like like you've lived it. It's like you've lived it a bit. Uh, Listen, it's been a long-term pursuit, buddy. Yeah. You remind me of a quick quote. I'll leave it. And then we'll, we'll wrap this. It's two definitions of being wealthy to get everything you want or to want everything you have. And I prefer the second one, right? But defining what that is for you and then working towards that. So, well, Jason, so thankful to have you come on and just share your wisdom. I I always know every time we chat, whether it's, you know, a phone call, a Zoom, a podcast, I'm going to learn something new. And I just love surrounding myself, speaking of people like you. So thanks for sharing. Thanks for carving out the time. And uh, sounds like we'll at least be seeing each other a little later in the year at, at Future Proof. So I'll look forward to that unless we get across paths sooner. At minimum, it's been a pleasure, man. Thank you so much. All right, Jason. Appreciate it. On to this week's featured review. It comes to us from user Sammy Waxman via Apple Podcasts Canada. So I believe this is our first international review that we're featuring here on the show. Welcome back. 
five stars. Super happy to have Brad Johnson's podcasts back in my life. Every episode always provides a new wisdom and insight that has allowed me to do positive things in my business. As a Canadian advisor, I was worried the content may not be as relevant, but that is not the case at all. This is an amazing podcast for any and all financial advisors looking to do right by their clients and grow their business while doing so. Well, Sammy, thanks for the kind words. Glad this is hitting home up north. Fun fact, Charlie, who produces the show for me, he's based out of Canada. And one of the things I always joke with Charlie on is I've never met a Canadian I don't like. Y'all are just like super kind and friendly every time I visited up there. So I'm glad to hear that uh, the show is having an impact up there as well. And yeah, it's really humbling as a podcast host. You just try to have great guests on, interesting conversations, be curious. And it blows me away still, the reach that podcasts have. I've connected with advisors from Canada, from there was somewhere in South America. I don't even remember the country, from Australia, from the UK, from Denmark. And it's just awesome to be able to be curious and have fun conversations, but just the reach of a podcast, how you can impact so many people in the world that are, are seeking information and obviously whatever you're putting out that aligns with them. So glad that's the case, Sammy, up north as well. If you're ever down in the States, hit me up and uh, love to connect and give you a, a great hosting in Lawrence, Kansas, if you're ever over here. So with that all, thanks for listening into another week's episode and we'll catch you next week. Take care. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Do Business, Do Life podcast. As we wrap, for access to show notes, transcripts, and exclusive content from all of our show's guests, don't forget to visit bradleyjohnson.com forward slash podcast. And before you go, I've got a quick favor to ask. If you're liking the podcast, you can help support the show by leaving your rating and review on iTunes. Not only do we read every single comment, but this will help the show rank and get discovered by new listeners and other financial advisors out there that can benefit from the show. Trust me, it really does help. So thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode. These conversations are intended to provide financial advisors with ideas, strategies, concepts, and tools that could be incorporated into their advisory practice. Advisors are ultimately responsible for ensuring implementation of anything discussed is in accordance with any and all regulatory and compliance responsibilities and obligations.